Hello, my name is Jonathan Swift, the Content Director of Team Pro Pro Digital's Insurance Division, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest edition of Motormouth, the podcast series linked with Motor Insurance World. Now, today we'll be covering and looking at micromobility, a subject which has had quite a bit of attention recently for a number of factors, not least the Department for Transport Future of Transport Regulatory Review, the pandemic lockdown and the knock-on impact on commuter journeys and public transport as people return to work. And finally, the fact that e-scooter trials have been brought forward to, quote mark, help encourage people off public transport and go on to greener alternatives. Now, I'm delighted to say, joining me for today's discussion, we have Chris Moore, head of IBOT and deputy active underwriter at 1971 Apollo Syndicate Management Limited, Rob McKeithen, the Vice President of Insurance and Risk Management at Lime, and finally, Gillian Slyfield at Aon. Welcome all. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. So first of all, and I'll come to you, Chris, on this, there's a lot of talk about micromobility. What is your opinion on what the future transport model of the UK will look like, and where does e-mobility fit in? Yeah, sure. I think... Um... It's, it's definitely something that's been accelerated by COVID-19. But for me, e-mobility is, is really addressing the, the movement around cities within the, within the lower end of mileage. So a little bit longer than a, than a, than a brisk walk. Um, and certainly in the UK, we get a little bit more rain than certain um, US colleagues on, on this call. Uh, so walking is <laughs> not always the nicest option. But it's really addressing, for me, it's addressing that trip that you want to make somewhere between the, the half a mile and five miles mark, um, where you know that's the sort of thing where you would get on a bicycle or you would get on um, an electronic scooter if it was easily available for you to do so. And this is where these shared micromobility operators are trying to address that need. That would then negate the need for getting in a vehicle, um, which would ultimately help with traffic. And it's also got some you know, it's got green, greener benefits when we look at, um, you know, pollutions of certain cities. So there's multiple benefits to it. But for me, I think it's really catering to to that that shorter journey where you don't necessarily want to get in a motor vehicle. You don't want to get on, on public transport. You'd like to be outside, but you need to get there a little bit quicker than a walk. Gillian, is, does that view kind of hold true for you and the business and the areas that you look after? Oh, absolutely. I, I second what Chris is saying. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen in, in research is that about 30% of traffic is associated just with parking alone. And so if you think about whether it's a time saving or um, an environmental savings of being able to hop on a scooter and go that that one mile or that two miles, rather than trying to get in a in some kind of a vehicle, um, it certainly is an efficiency. I think for a lot of people, it's also kind of fun. You know, we're trying to either hail a cab or get a rideshare um, might feel onerous or time consuming. Um, scooters are kind of a fun way to very efficiently and in a very environmentally um, conscious way get from point A to point B. So I, I'm excited to see them in the UK and, and glad they're here. Finally, I'll come to Rob and I'll be very interested to know how Lime views the UK market and what your experience has been operating bikes here. Uh, yes, thanks, Jonathan. So uh, you may know uh, Lime has been operating bikes in, in the London market for some time now. Uh, we're very excited about the uh, pending reopening of a trial period for e-scooters in the United Kingdom. 
and with the many changes Mayor Khan has made uh, recently to the streetscape in London and other places in the UK, we think micromobility is going to be a great fit. Uh, already with Lyme's bike share service, we're seeing an increase in ridership, uh, new users, distance traveled, and other encouraging signs that make us believe that uh, scooters will, uh, will do quite well. If I can come to you, Chris, again, and, and looking at the insurance angle, what have the likes of uh, Apollo and Aon been doing to try and develop products to support micromobility models? And why do you think there are a limited uh, number of insurers currently willing to entertain the risk posed by these new mobility platforms? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's certainly for me, it's, it's an emerging risk. Um, I think that what it's taken from um, from us at Apollo to, to really be involved in this space is a dedication of time and effort. We spent a lot of time investigating uh, the product itself, both on the manufacturing side, the operational side, um, and just the amount of controls and, and the data and, and the insight into the, into the actual model. Um, we've been collaborating both with um, our broking partners at Aon uh, and with the individual operators like Lime. To, to really discuss, right, okay, what does an insurance need look like in this space? Um, what sort of data can you collect? How does that translate to your claims data? You know, so a lot of discussion. Um, we really truly feel it's a, it's a partnership when we when we enter into these relationships. And, um, and we've also been collaborating with the cities themselves. You know, at the moment, there's not a uniform standard to how these mobility models are regulated. Uh, and that means there's not a standardized um, way to insure them in these individual territories. So lots of collaboration on, on what does the right insurance product look like. And when I say the right product, um, it's got to be one that's commercially viable to support these operators. Um, and also one that, that caters the needs of, of, of the risk itself. And, and so the regulators are comfortable to to agree these mobility models in their individual territories. Um, to answer the second part of your question as to, to why I don't think many insurers are, are active in the space, um, I think it, it has to come down to a lack of understanding or, or a lack of attention that they've put on it. So if you haven't dedicated the time to see the opportunity, to see the growth, to see actually what do the claims, what do the exposures look like, and is that something that I'm comfortable with and, and can price? You know, this isn't something you'd enter. And I also think that the press do a wonderful job of dramatizing the risks associated with, with these models. You know, no, no mobility model is without risk. Um, you know, there are motor vehicle accidents that happen every day with, with numerous fatalities. And, you know, we accept that in our, our society, but it makes great headlines when there's a, an injury involving a micromobility service. And, and that has definitely had an effect on the insurance industry. I've met many of my colleagues that have got opinions on micromobility that are unfounded off any data or any knowledge other than the things that they've read online or the things they've read in the newspaper. So that has certainly worn off um, insurers. And I'm, I'm sure Gillian comes up against that uh, on a daily basis as she's working hard to develop new markets for these, for these operators. Gillian, yeah. I'll bring you in. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's um, a tremendous opportunity in this space for carriers, but it's also, as Chris started at the beginning of his comments, talking about all of the, the kind of the process that, that um, Apollo and iBot have gone through to understand the risk. And when you're a carrier that maybe isn't as nimble or doesn't have that kind of view on 
emerging risks, it becomes more challenging to understand. One of the things that I say about our clients, and this applies um, to micromobility, but also other emerging risks, is that oftentimes our clients have very deep data, meaning there's a lot of data around um, the point of transaction. So you get quite a bit of information about any one claim or incident or occurrence, um, but you don't have long data. You're not going to have 10 years of data for a three-year business model. And so as an underwriter, you've got to think differently about how you're underwriting risks like this and saying, okay, if this is the data set that I have, I actually have more information around um, every single transaction here than I would in a, in a legacy business. So how do I underwrite to that type of transaction um, how do I underwrite to the culture of trust and safety, to the experienced, as Lyme does, um, executive team in place, one of the best in the industry? Um, how do I underwrite to that instead of underwriting to 10 years of lost history and a full um, kind of actuarial triangle that I can look at um, and, and push that forward. And so I think for a lot of carriers, they just kind of, they look at this and say, this is new. Much of this is usage-based insurance, kind of a, a um, pay per unit of transaction, pay per mile, pay per minute. Um, and so you've really got to think differently about um, both how you write the insurance, what the most effective and efficient way to write the insurance is. And it's a whole different thought process around um, how do I underwrite this type of risk than you do in almost any other um, type of business? So I think there's some reluctance on the part of carriers because it's a very unknown um, uh, risk profile, but it's also an unknown process. And so it's really rethinking the way that we evaluate um, risk uh, and, um, and underwriting and kind of going forward. But I think it's a great opportunity as well. Um, for companies like Apollo and Aon working together with clients like Lime, I think it's a, a great one-two punch to say, we understand the process. We do look deeply at the data. We do try to think about, you know, what kind of um, claims data can we look at that are indicative of frequency or severity that we can um, utilize to mitigate. And I think we'll talk about that later to mitigate claims. Um, how can we make this a stronger risk profile going forward together as a team who is looking at this data and learning it um, together as we move forward? Um, so I think it's a really exciting time. Um, you also asked a little bit about developing new products. And uh, Lime is a great example of this in that there's there are opportunities to build new products because the old products don't fit because this is a new business model. This isn't something um, that we all understand and have worked with previously. So we've got to look at it and say, okay, what are the risks, the true risk issues, both for Lyme and then at the point of transaction, what's happening for um, the rider as well? And how can we either create new products um, or utilize products that have been used um, for different industries here for the point of transaction, right size them um, to make sure that there's a feeling of being safe on the vehicle um, and protected during the transaction. So, Rob, is your view as a client in terms of um, the products that are out there and the, uh, you know, getting innovative products and capacity uh, essentially for for micro mobility kind of, you know, in, insurance solutions for, for insurance for yourself as the client? Uh, yeah, thank you. So, I, I want to echo something, uh, Chris said. I, I think the um, uh, the the relatively small number of incidents involving micromobility providers uh, that have resulted in serious injury or death uh, gets really disproportionate coverage in the press. And I think that fosters kind of a misunderstanding of what the risk is. 
uh, I mean, regard just from a, an insured risk standpoint, one thing is clear, scooters are not a, nearly as risky as automobiles, as an example. Um, and from a regulatory standpoint, uh, you know, we strongly advocate they should not be regulated the same way. They should not have the same insurance requirements. Um, there is risk, uh, but it's a much lower risk than, than most vehicles on the road. Um, you know, just rough numbers, automobiles kill 40,000 plus people each year in America alone. Um, scooters have killed fewer than 50 people globally since inception of the, the industry. Um, so, and, and in most cases, uh, uh, those killed while using a scooter actually are the result of uh, a car hitting them. And so um, the, the risk, I think, uh, is, is fundamentally misunderstood, I think, by, by uh, a lot of people in the underwriting community. So, Gillian, you've already mentioned that obviously with these type of solutions, there isn't 10 years worth of um, kind of underwriting and data. But these new mobility platforms do have rich data capabilities. What are the opportunities for creating new cutting edge risk models, Gillian? Uh, well, I think there's quite a few. Um, you know, as we talked about, I think one of the things that's really important with any um, kind of emerging business model is that they collect um, good data early in their life cycle so that you can use that data to develop, you know, whether it's insurance products or other things down the line. And Lime's done a nice job with that. Um, and so if you're looking at each point of transaction, you're thinking, um, you know, how can we look at the claims data differently um, with a company like Lime where you can dissect it and say, as an example, um, is, is the risk the same for someone who's jumping on a scooter for the first time as it is for someone who's riding a scooter for the seventh, eighth or ninth time? Like where, where is it that someone might have the potential to feel more confident and an understanding of the, the vehicle? Um, and we can make a decision there. So sometimes we can use that data to, to um, segment the risk and then price the risk differently, um, utilizing tools like that. Um, we talked a little bit about usage-based insurance. I think scaling coverage is very important. Um, a business like Lime, UK will be a, is a good, a good example of this, which is, you know, day one, you're gonna have X usage and day 100, you're gonna have a thousand X usage. And so, you know, being able to create a, a product that scales, if you look at legacy business models, you may say, well, over the course of the year, there might be a flux of two to 3% um, of the exposure basis between, you know, January and June, et cetera. Whereas a business like Lime that has the hockey stick growth, um, you wanna make sure that you're creating, you know, a, an efficient price that scales with the business as they scale and scales back candidly um, in the event as we've all experienced in the last couple of months that um, is unforeseen. Um, you also have to think about kind of definitions. So this is an interesting one, which is, um, you know, what is a scooter? So, you know, we work with different business models um, around the world, many of whom define themselves as scooters. Some of them I think of more like a moped um, and some of them are scooters with seats. Some of them um, have a, a faster capability. So some of them go, you know, less than 10 miles an hour, some go less than 15, some go 25. You know, what does that mean for the risk profile um, and how do we collect data associated with each of those? So kind of making sure that we have um, all of these uh, uh, data points associated with the right format vehicles so that we know um, what we're building. Um, there's also new coverage parts, as I mentioned earlier. It's important um, 
for Lime as an example to protect Lime as the enterprise and for Lime as our client, we certainly want to do that. But there's also an element um, working with the trust and safety teams at the point of transaction, making sure that um, the rider feels protected at the point of transaction and that we're looking at what that can be, whether that's provided by Lime or provided by um, the rider, you know, how can we make sure that each of those pieces fit together kind of hand in glove? So I think there's a, a lot of opportunities to work um, in micromobility to say, you know, instead of taking an old product and retrofitting it here, saying, what, what do we actually need in the marketplace um, for a company like this? And by the way, make it malleable enough to say, this is what we thought in year one, but year one, we only knew about year one. Now looking back at three years of information, um, what would we do differently? And let's build that, right? Let's not get so stuck in what we did a couple of years ago. Um, as we get new information, let's continue to build a more efficient and right-sized insurance program, both, both from a cost perspective and from a coverage perspective. Rob? So I'm a big advocate of pricing based on measured exposure. I, I think uh, for for um, businesses like Lime in particular, where so many things are changing at the same time, we, we understand that represents a challenge to a traditional approach to underwriting. Um, but you know, we we have uh, we have a product where our vehicles are are regularly getting improved, um, and that distinctly affects their, their risk profile and improves the, the safety characteristics of the vehicles. Uh, our operation itself uh, is entering new markets and scaling in those markets uh, and the regulatory climates uh, in, in individual markets uh, is, uh, is a little bit of a moving target at this point. So it's a highly dynamic risk and I certainly understand how that's a challenge uh, for some underwriters. It's, uh, that's why we, we value our relationship with those who take a creative approach like Chris teams, Chris team. Um, but uh, it, it is something I think where, where really the only solution is to develop products that, uh, that do have that kind of uh, uh, dynamic pricing that's uh, based on a measurement of exposure. Finally, I'll come to you, Chris. Yeah, sure. I, I think one of the areas uh, of insurance at the moment that excites me the most is that I think this is an area where insurers can truly innovate and innovate in a partnership where they have some protection. I think when you when you speak to people like Rob and his team, uh, there's definitely the sentiment that they want long-term relationships and they appreciate that we may make some mistakes in the way that we rate these insurance products or how we rate these insurance products, but we'll learn from that and we'll evolve quickly and rapidly and, 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 and be there for the long-term. And what's exciting about the product itself if I look at the first day we insured Lime, I don't think there's a single one of those scooter products still in existence um, because they evolved their product so so rapidly with new safety features, new protections. Um, and that's also quite exciting. So to, to Rob's point, it's a very dynamic risk. And everything we've seen is increasing safety and reducing loss in the industry. So, so that's a, obviously a, a massive plus. I think where insurers who have looked at this space have probably gone wrong, is trying to, uh, to Gillian's point, is trying to find an old solution and apply it to, to this new mobility model. So most people have said, right, okay, I'm gonna use my auto or my motor insurance model and see how this fits. Well, this is a very different product and all the different rating factors that link itself to someone driving a car aren't really relevant. And so what's exciting about creating a new model is you have to add on your, your own factors. So, you know, 
we know what is being ridden because it's a standardized scooter product. We can dive really deeply into how it's manufactured um, and all those different things. And then you can look at how it's ridden. You know, most, most motor vehicles, you know, do not have telematics capabilities. I know that there are, you know, more and more telematics products entering the market, but it's still not across all vehicles. But with, with these scooters and the app and, and the brain that it has within, within the scooter model, you're getting lots of data about how it's being ridden. And then to, to Gillian's point also, you can look at rider experience. So at what point does someone get used to you know, riding the scooter and, and does that risk really change? And can your rating model take into account that rider experience? And then the final part where there's open, you know, it's, it's open for, for very large innovation is, is where it's being ridden. Now, we have lots of industry modifiers by city, by zip code, by, you know, even down to the individual road about how auto insurance looks and how car traffic looks but now the attributes of those roads that we care about from a micro mobility solution are very different so what we want to look at is what is the width of that road does it have a dedicated cycle lane and that's where you, you need to bring in brand new territory modifiers that are specific to micro mobility and it's the people that are willing to to share data collaborate you know we know that that sort of data sets exist for cars but the, the carriers that are willing to embrace this model. And like I said previously, it takes time and focus and dedicated, you know, um, attention to this. I think they're the, the insurers that are really going to, to prosper is in this growing micromobility space. We've already touched upon the fact there is perhaps a misunderstanding about the, the risk involved in e-scooters. In, in e and indeed, there are a growing number of studies showing that e-scooters are actually safer than bicycles. Can I ask you, Rob, as you really raise this, why do you think there was a fear factor associated with new mobility platforms? And what can business and kind of the regulatory and government do to remove this fear? Yeah, great question. So unfortunately, we often see what I would characterize as a disproportionate response uh, in, in terms of regulations and government policies that uh, go out of their way to target uh, e-scooters in particular, but um, sometimes also e-bikes. And I think that's either because they're a novel mode of transportation, there's you know, a fundamental uh, fear of, of the new and unknown, um, or maybe there, there have been some you know, local, uh, local complaints uh, from constituents uh, uh, about scooters. Um, but either way, it's, it's, you know, this approach is a regressive way of regulating the mode that uh, provides a lot of social benefits uh, is you know an emission-free, uh, geometrically small and, and flexible way of getting around the city. It's, it's in many ways uh, purpose-built for that per for for that use. Um, and you know, increasingly, we are seeing some uh, some in in the UK market oppose uh, some of the, the mandatory insurance requirements for e-scooters. So I, I think that's very much an evolving story in the UK in particular. Um, and uh, and as I as I said, I, I think there are some uh, perhaps misunderstandings about what the real risk is, and and I'm pleased to see that we're we're starting to actually um, uh, get an audience for for uh, for understanding the risk a little bit better. Chris, yeah, I, for me, I think you know how do you how do you remove the fear? I'd say um, you know Gillian and Rob, I think certainly work for us and. And the insurance markets that I know support support the line team, they have done a, a great job of discussing, educating, and, and sharing information. You know, both studies and and their own experience. 
Um, and as long as insurers are willing to listen, I think they'll continue to do that. And that, that has helped. Um, I think ongoing um, discussions and education are happening with government regulations. Um, I, I'd like to see that increased and, and, and be done far more so. Um, I think we've already seen certain cities embrace the model and have loved the model. And then you may see now that the regulators who don't want that model to go away um, will, will hopefully be a little bit more uh, open to discussion on what an insurance requirement looks like. And I think that will be the, the operators will be in a better position post-COVID-19 for that because most cities are going to want alternative mobility solutions beyond mass transit and private cars being used on their roads. So hopefully that allows for scooter operators to, to have a, a, a better say, if you like, in those discussions on what insurance. There's a reason why the UK have accelerated their trials. So I think if the, if the community and the operators themselves, you know, in partnership with their brokers, continue to be open and transparent, then I think hopefully there'll be insurers like us and, and others that are willing to collaborate to create solutions. And finally, I'll come to Gillian on this point. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think some of it is just a familiarity with the product. You know, you're asking about, um, you know, why there's a fear factor associated with it. And I think for many people, if you think of a bicycle, most of us have been driving, you know, riding a bicycle of some kind since we were five. And um, and not all of us have jumped on a scooter before. And so I think just the the lack of knowledge, it's not it's not second nature um, as we think of bicycles to be. Um, so I think there's a familiarity. But what I think we've all learned is that um, when you open up the model and, and Lyme has done this beautifully, it's a lot of fun um, entering a new market and having kind of training days where you have kind of an area of the city quarantined off and um, and riders can come and, and ride in the park or something like that just to learn for the first time where you have um, a lot of, you know, in this case, Lyme colleagues um, working together to, to teach people how to ride them, to get them familiar with it, get a comfort level up. So I think there's a big piece of just kind of getting past that, the unknown that we all feel, um, not that it is more dangerous, it's just something we're not very familiar with. Um, and then understanding what the use cases are. You might say, oh, I'm, you know, 40 years old, is a, is a scooter really the right mode of transportation for me? And then when you're seeing the use cases of like, wow, I can get into, you know, the streets in downtown London um, from my office to a mile away, um, faster than any other mode of transportation here and safer. Wow, maybe this really is for me. This is this is a use case I understand. Or I'm on vacation and I want to try it on a holiday in a in a city. Um, you all of a sudden you kind of break down those barriers to to um, what you're not as familiar with and say this makes a lot more sense. And and I think that that to me, I think it's it's two pieces: is getting familiar and then hearing that information, that secondary piece. Um, I frankly think you need both. I think you need to have an experience with the scooter to feel comfortable with it. But I think having the data behind it as well to say, um, here's what we've learned as scooters have become um, such a robust business model over the last couple of years. Here's what we've learned about safety. Here's what, here's what we know. Um, I, I do think one of the challenges, though, if I could bring it up, is that um, the rules around riding a scooter vary from city to city. And I do think that that's a challenge, even as someone like myself who's ridden scooters in um, numerous cities around the world. Um, you've got to you've got to learn what the rules are in that unique city instead of it being 
you know, as, as you drive a, a car, I think everyone knows how to get in a car, drive that effectively um, almost anywhere in the world. The the rules around do, when do I ride on the sidewalk? When do I ride on the, um, the bike lanes? Uh, maybe we even rename bike lanes to something else. You know, how do I behave on a scooter? How fast do I go? What are the city parameters? So I think, again, it just the the more that people are riding them, the more we know someone has ridden it, the more familiar we become, the more comfortable we are, the more we understand the rules, um, and the safer the product becomes. It's I think it's kind of a um, circular and self fulfilling, safer uh, and more comfortable mode of transportation. Yeah, and and building on that, Gillian, and this is a point that has actually come up already, and something that we had a panel discussion at Motor Insurance World Live early this year, and one of the issues that came up was that when considering micro-mobility models, um, there were a number of insurance challenges. You know, some territories classify scooters as automobiles and thus subject to motor insurance laws, where in other territories they're allowed to be covered by much less regulated general liability coverage. How can this be overcome? And I'll come to you first of all, Gillian. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that um, that we've really ad- advocated for at Aon, um, I lead our digital economy practice, but we have a number of practices that focus on different areas of, bi- of business, um, including um, kind of public affairs and um, public services. And so when we have cities that come to us um, and what they do is, of course, they come to the, the practice within Aon uh, that represents cities and states, et cetera, government government. Um, organizations, we try to put those two together. And so I've had a number of conversations um, with risk managers of cities, city managers, transportation departments, where they've come to us ahead of um, rolling out uh, scooters or other kinds of um, micromobility and saying, hey, this is new for us. What can we learn from your experience at Aon? Um, I know that Chris at Apollo has also had similar conversations um, with with cities and states and saying, what can we learn from your experience? What should this look like? Like what works and how do we create some consistency here? And we really value those. I, I won't say that we we um, tell people the right answer. I'm not sure that we know that there's a right answer, but we can certainly share what we've learned, you know, how we see the data so far, best practices of micromobility operators, um, and just share those learnings so that as these government bodies are going into making decisions around how to define um, micromobility and what that looks like, they've got you know, as much data as they can, as much information, and even anecdotally, kind of what what do we hear that's working or not working, speaking to peers, etc. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think there is a challenge, you know, I, I understand why um, uh, there might be a concern about should this be on the auto, should this be on the GL, particularly when the definitions are still in flux. Uh, and so I think just gathering as much information as possible. Having said all that, I will would say, as much consistency as we can provide um, all of us as part of this transaction, the better, right? If a, if a user um, steps onto a scooter and understands specifically how to operate it, where to operate it, and what the protections in place are, that's better for all of us. If Lyme understands how, the, how their vehicle is going to be viewed kind of in the world, if you will, um, instead of city by city, that's better for everyone. Um, so I think that consistency really breeds um, trust in the product, safety, um, helps us in the insurance community build products around expectations. 
um, and leads everyone that's a piece of as a party to that transaction um, better off long term. And I, I think we're getting there. There seems to be more consistency over time. Um, but again, it's still a, a, a fairly new business model. Yeah. Rob, what's your take on on the subject of uh, kind of different regulatory regimes? Well, it's, a, it's certainly a challenge for us. Uh, we <laughs> operate in over 100 markets in 30 countries and five continents. And uh, there, there is uh, quite a lot of variance uh, from, from uh, sometimes from uh, city to city, even within within a given country. Um, so uh, our, our approach is, is to be as proactive as we can in working with regulators to have a good data uh, foundation that allows them to understand what the risk is. Um, we, uh, we also are advocates towards uh, consistency in terms of the coverage that's uh, being provided. We're, we're in the process of uh, rolling out a program, uh, taking a leadership position actually throughout Europe and Asia about what we think uh, the appropriate insurance solution for users of our product is. Uh, it's a program that's, uh, that's been custom developed, a uh, uh, partnership between us and, uh, and our insurer that uh, provides uh, uh, consistent coverage from country to country, from city to city uh, for riders who use our product. And finally, I'll come to you, Chris. Yeah, sure. I, I definitely agree with with Gillian that there needs to be a form of standardization. Uh, standardization. Um, but excuse the pun. I, I definitely want to speak to the regulators about what the driver is of that standardization. Um, I don't think it, it works for the operators if they create an, an industry standard for an for an insurance requirement that isn't fit for purpose. And really, I want to pull it back and say, okay, well. For me, when I look at the micromobility world, I see three unique risk categories. I see the platform liability. Um, so if there's a, a failure or malfunction with the software or the product itself, you know, that is the liability of the platform. You then have that rider liability. So if a rider does something you know, uh, untoward on the scooter and causes injury to somebody else, that, that's one other charge of risk. And then the final part being the rider himself. So the rider's personal um, liability um, if they fall off and are injured. So I see those as three, three separate risk charges. And even if you were to classify micromobility as you know as auto and or, or as motor vehicles, and you 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 talk about the you know UK unlimited motor liability being in place, that still doesn't cater for all those tranches. That still only caters for one of them. Um, so I think what you get from looking at general liability solutions and I'm not saying that that you know captures all of those because personal accident is something separate, but general liability because it has more flexibility because it's not a standardised product for a vehicle for a motor vehicle, um, it allows you to be flexible to create it so that it speaks to the true exposures of a micromobility operator. I don't think applying car insurance to a vehicle that's clearly not a car is the best solution here. Um, and, and I just, you know, it's about speaking to the regulator to say, what are your concerns? What insurance do you want to see in place? And then saying, okay, let me create a solution that, that covers your concerns. And if we did that, I don't think the final solution would be, um, would be motor insurance, to be honest. <laughs> so, Chris, so th again, this has been touched upon, but how are the uh, players in this market challenging traditional uh, motor insurance models by using alternative exposure bases, uh, whether that's per minute? per ride, uh, UBI, 
and different risk factors uh, than, than perhaps a normally widely adopted in traditional motor insurance? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge uh, insight from the data that these operators collect that can really be used, which is far beyond what we potentially get from motor or and in certain legislations, we can use that data points to, to greater abilities than we could in motor. Um, you know, it's constantly evolving and, and we're constantly changing the way that we rate policies or, or how the coverage works based off, off the output of that data. So I think rider experience is a great one. It's looking at that point where somebody becomes an experienced rider. You, with, with, with auto insurance and, and motor vehicles, you have somebody that's passed a driving license. They've gone through a test to show they've got the experience to drive the vehicle on, on a road. You don't have to get your, your license to ride uh, a scooter or a specific license for scooters. So we see a huge amount of the risk um, within the first few rides. And it's finding where that risk point really drops off to say, this person now is a much lower risk because they understand how the brakes work. They understand how the acceleration works. They're used to the balance of, of an e-scooter. So we definitely see that and, and our model needs to, to address that change in risk based off rider experience. I think, again, on that point of where the scooter is being ridden, can we dive deeper into, into cycle lanes and, and can we work with operators to try and promote more of these riding on scooters via routes that have cycle lanes and, and that can reduce risk. So I think it's definitely a usage-based pricing model uh, for me that is the solution, but just using lots of different risk factors that are specific to micromobility and not specific to your traditional car insurance models. Gillian? Yeah, I mean, I think Chris touched on most of the kind of the salient points here, but absolutely, um, you know, when you're looking at the usage-based pricing, I think we talked about that, you know, earlier, which is, um, yeah, first of all, definitely getting away from the auto insurance, but but also just right-sizing the coverage, you know, making sure that it's usage-based and on a, on a um, value that makes the most sense. I think, you know, we had an experience early on with Lime where we were um, in, in one geography valuing the, the vehicles or charging for the vehicles, rating them on a per vehicle basis. And um, that made sense until we kind of took a closer look. And this was this was our first time at it and, and Lime's first time at it. And then after a while, we said, you know, this really isn't the best way of rating this coverage. And here's why. And we talked about the flow of vehicles through the process of you know, whether they're being maintained or being utilized and this change in exposure there. And so we said, okay, let's right size this to a different value. And so I think, you know, we do have um, that, uh, as we talked about earlier, kind of more data around every point in the transaction. And it gives us that opportunity um, to create a, you know, whether it's a per minute or a per ride um, pricing that becomes extremely accurate and, and, um, one of the benefits here is that as you can calculate that is as long as our client, in this case, Lime, can calculate the number effectively, how many minutes are being utilized, et cetera, which for them is a piece of cake. Um, if we can do that, then we can wrap a number around that that makes this the most sense for the exposure. So I think it's a real opportunity for us um, as we look at this at micromobility to say, um, here's what the exposure looks like when the vehicle is parked. Here's what the exposure looks like when it's being ridden. Here's what it looks like when it's being ridden by someone who's experienced. Um, it might be different um, if you're in France or you're in Paris and you're on cobblestones and it's your first ride than if you're in Austin, Texas and it's a flat road and it's your 10th ride. 
Um, so let's take a look at that and say, you know, how do we do this differently? So I think we've got a real opportunity there. Um, and, you know, <laughs> traditional motor, as Chris said, was was built for vehicles, um, for auto vehicles, and has has a very, what, 100-year um, history behind it, looking pretty much the same over that 100 years, but also being refined very carefully for um, a very specific, you know, two-ton vehicle on roads with a driver who has a license. It just doesn't have a lot of comparisons to um, micromobility. So I think we need to abandon that that view and really look at what is what is the right um, coverage, what are the right coverage parts, um, the right pricing and exposure for this specific format. I, I think we have an opportunity, we have enough information to build something um, bespoke here. I don't think we need to go back to a model that really doesn't have a lot of congruencies. <laughs> and finally, I'll come to you, Rob. Yeah, I, I think I'd uh, echo some things that uh, Chris and Jillian have uh, touched on. I, I think that um, you have to accept the fact, number one, that it's a distinctly different vehicle with different risk characteristics. And so the product should uh, should reflect that. Uh, the usage cases are different. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the scenarios in which you, you see claims are different. Um, so understanding the risk, making sure that you, you've got appropriate coverage that responds to the risk. Uh, and then when it comes to pricing the risk, uh, Again, I, I'm a big advocate of pricing based on measured exposure. I think when you have businesses that um, are as dynamic as as limes, uh, where where things are changing rapidly, uh, the the appropriate way to to underwrite this risk uh, and and make money underwriting this risk is is to price it based on uh, a measure of exposure. Uh, so finally, I mean, that there are various micro-mobility platforms out there at the moment, and there's quite a lot of fierce competition, a bit like the early rideshare days. Uh, and could it be argued, and I'll come to you on this first, Gillian, could it be argued that these um, uh, these these solutions are, are looking at insurance, given the competitive advantage? And is that preventing or delaying collaboration to create an industry standard and uniform regulation? Uh, you know, I... I don't think so. I think that this is a little bit different than the early rideshare days. And you know, I've I've been in a um, an uh, advantageous position, if you will, with the rideshare companies in that um, some of the larger names are clients of ours at Aon, and I've I've been able to see how this has come together. Um, and you know, insurance is seen as a strategic differentiator for. Um, new emerging business models, as it should. And we um, strongly um, support that, particularly through us here at Aon in the digital economy practice. Having said that, I think that a lot of these folks have learned, our clients have learned, um, when to collaborate and when to fiercely compete. And so, um, you know, I think what if what you can take a step back and say, okay, let's compete when we're kind of on the street, if you will, um, let's compete for clients, but let's collaborate when it comes to a go-forward look around regulation. That is, that's only going to be helpful to facilitate everyone's business model to have clear definitions to work with the cities. If a, if a city, just through lack of information or um, or kind of competing outside business models, comes to them with with um, disparate views, they might make a decision in a city that doesn't benefit any one of the, the business models and in fact hurts those business models um, there. So I think if you're talking to, whether it's regulators, city operators, transportation groups, 
Um, I've seen thus far more collaboration with micro mobility than I did with rideshare. And candidly, I think, you know, some of the folks that are now in micro mobility are people who came out of rideshare, understand what the benefit and where to compete, and also understand the benefit of, you know, maybe we should have our trust and safety teams coordinated to some degree. Let's let's learn from each other here. Maybe we should have government affairs talking to each other um, on occasion so that we can talk about what's what is a, a strong industry standard. Um, I'm not saying that it all works perfectly. Um, and there should be some healthy competition there. Um, but I do think that there's more in these new business models than we've seen historically in other business models. Rob, would, would you agree with that line? Uh, I, I would. And to go further with that, uh, we're seeing some really great uh, uh, collaborative approaches being taken, in, taken uh, in some of the cities in, in which we operate. Uh, right now. So I, I think this is, um, I think it's evolving. I think especially during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, many cities are turning to shared scooters and, and bikes as uh, a way to discourage car use. Um, and and uh, and they're maybe, uh, app, you know, they're, they're trying to understand uh, what, what they need to do in, in this uh, uh, in this environment to, to meet the needs of, of their citizens for, for getting around the city and, uh, and acknowledge the fact that people are apprehensive about crowding into tight spaces with, with other people. Um, we're even seeing uh, some cities and countries uh, going as far as, as subsidizing uh, uh, the use of our, our product, uh, our rental bikes and scooters. Um, so um, I think it's evolving. I think it's evolving in a good direction right now. So finally, I'll come to you, Chris. Yeah, sure. I, I definitely agree with with Rob that it's evolving and evolving in the right direction. Certainly in the early days, I did see that a lot of city regulators, specifically in the US, were definitely, I don't know, trying to maybe right some wrongs from the experiences they had with rideshare and were asking for some pretty, you know, pretty outrageous insurance requirements. Um, you know, it, it was it was baffling for me that look at both sectors to see a ride sharing company being mandated to carry, you know, a million dollars of liability, but yet a scooter operator in certain cities was being asked to carry ten million dollars. When you know one vehicle can do seventy kilometers an hour down a highway, and another one, you know, average speeds in in most cases is somewhere between ten and fourteen kilometers an hour. So I, I always found that very interesting. Um, and then there were some early operators that decided to agree to certain um, cities' requirements that ultimately, you know, made you know hurt unique economics in those cities. But it meant that other other operators couldn't really compete because they couldn't afford those types of insurance coverages. But ultimately, I, I agree with Rob. I think that's that's evolved from there. I think all scooter operators now are looking this to say, yes, of course, insurance is important. Um, but it's not in anyone's best interest to have insurance requirements that are going to ultimately make us unprofitable. It's all about making sure we're sustainable. So I think there's a, there's more um, there's a more willingness now for, for that I see for for collaboration. Um, so yeah, I think I think it is evolving in the right direction. Excellent. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So I'd like to thank uh, my panel of Gillian, uh, Rob, and Chris. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you.
Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, this is definitely a subject that is not going to go away, and I say um, I look forward to covering it um, as over the coming months and years. It's a subject that we'll probably also touch upon at the uh, Motor Insurance World event, which now has a revised date of the 15th of September. So please stay tuned for all more information about that. But until the next Motormouth podcast, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio, everybody. Bye.